Welcome to the Exodus Cry podcast. Hi, everyone. We have Gene McConnell with us back in our on our podcast again today, and we're excited that he's here with us to talk about the issue of shame and how shame plays a role in perpetuating a cycle of addiction, of acting out, um, compulsive behavior. So, uh, Gene, thank you so much for jumping back on the podcast with us again today. We're really excited to enter into this conversation with you. It's good to be here and uh, get a chance to talk with you guys again. You guys do such great work. I'm just proud to be a part of it. Likewise, likewise. Uh, we, For those of you who have not uh, heard the previous podcast that Gene did with us, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that, as well as the follow-up debrief that Lila and I did on it, um, we opened up and unpacked a lot of really intense stuff. Um, Gene confided his whole story with us, and there's just a lot to work through with that. And um, he really helps illuminate this idea of how people fall into um, these cycles of sexually compulsive addictive behavior, and then how that can snowball into uh, so many other things that a person never signed up for when they you know, first looked at that image online of pornography or whatever it was. And, and so I think Gene's got a really important voice in this movement. Um, somebody who was formerly a sex buyer at one point and who now is... Um, speaking out and, and doing conferences to help men um, and to overcome um, their issues of, of sexual uh, compulsion and, and addiction. And, um, and again, just with an emphasis on this idea and this role of shame. And so um, one of the ways that I like to think about shame, and if you could just kind of picture an analogy with me here for a moment, is that pathological shame is like this ping pong relationship that goes back and forth between behavior triggering shame and then shame triggering behavior and then behavior triggering shame. And of course, I'm talking about negative behavior. So, you, you, you know, the, the person goes online, they look at something that they know they probably shouldn't be looking at. It triggers a feeling of I am bad. And then the feeling of I am bad drives them to go back and to feed on more of that. And then there's an escalation and a snowball. And, and over time, it, it becomes it can become very destructive in a person's life. And, and it can affect, you know, obviously, as a result of that, it can affect ultimately many other people as well, as we learned through Gene's story. Um, and so, so, Gene, I know you've spent a lot of time unpacking this issue of shame and you have a really clear perspective of the distinction between healthy shame, unhealthy shame, the role of unhealthy pathological shame in a person's life. And, um, and I know that, you know, you and I both know, and, and Lila, you know, we, we all know that there are so many people who are struggling today with um, compulsions that feel almost outside of their control related to the issue of pornography. 
and and this has become so huge in our world. And so we wanted to take time just to press into this subject with you today and talk about that. So maybe starting out, can you help us understand the distinction between healthy versus unhealthy shame? Uh, sure. The healthy shame is really very similar to, to guilt. And um, when I do something wrong, I make a mistake, I hurt somebody, I feel guilty about that. And I want to, and I'll do whatever it takes to, to, to fix that, to, 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 re, to redeem that or to restore that. And, you know, I was a roofing contractor for much of my young life. And whenever I would do a roof in it, and if there ever was a leak, they, I would immediately go and fix it. The guilt of knowing that my actions has cost somebody something and I want to fix it. I want to get, I want to restore it. And I would go and fix it. And then I'd walk away and it would never be an issue again. It's done. It's over. It's past me. So it's, it's got, you know, healthy shame exposes my depravity, but it doesn't attack my identity. So it shows my mistakes. It reveals my mistakes. It puts it puts a driver to fix my mistakes, but it doesn't attack well, 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 who well. I am. Hang tight one and that's second. A really... I just want to pause on that, boy, because you said it fast, but that's, that is one of the weightiest lines and, and the clearest definitions that I've heard in kind of one succinct sentence. Healthy shame exposes mm-hmm. my depravity, but it doesn't it's attack good. my identity. It's good. We're going we're gonna to tweet that. Gene. That's good. <laughs> That's really good. I gotta, yeah, I gotta, I gotta write that one down. I need to, I need to sit with that one for a minute. Healthy shame exposes my depravity, but it doesn't attack my identity. Okay. So build on that for us. I, I'd love to hear you expand on that. That's yeah. That's, that's really profound. Well, it's core because what happens is we all make mistakes. We all have shortcomings in our life. And scriptures teach that we all are sinners. We all fall short. And so there's, a, there's, an, there's that thing of making a mistake and knowing that I can correct it. I can do what I need to do to fix it. But when, I, when it moves to unhealthy shame is where we look at then, it's a belief that not only do I do something wrong, but I am wrong. And that's where it buries us because it it comes down to the things that have happened in my life, the things that have, you know, my sexual abuse, the physical abuse, the neglect, all of those things are not just things that happen to me. What unhealthy shame does, it says, mm. that is who you are. And so when I believe, and, and shame is a belief, it's a, it's a one's painful belief in their basic defectiveness as a human being. So shame is a painful belief. It's not just a mm. feeling. So when I talk about shame, I mean unhealthy shame. Unhealthy shame is a belief. It's a core belief that says, at the core of my life, I'm no good. And instead of saying, I made a mistake, I can correct this, I say I am a mistake, and it and yeah. it's huge. It's huge because well, scriptures no, teach. Say, Go ahead. You Go know, ahead. I think, That's all right. I think it, it probably has um, differing applications at different stages of, or different levels of intensity in terms of how people experience that at different stages of life. So 
given everything that you've been through and just, you know, the journey that you've been on and, and now having reached a point of maturity, um, you're, you're quite a bit down the road from where you were as, uh, you know, a young, youngish child seeing porn for the first time. And you have kind of the emotional, psychological tools and apparatus to be able to think objectively and clearly about how you're being affected by these things and, and probably a better ability to navigate, you know, those dynamics. But just thinking of, you know, how shame would affect somebody in their childhood or early adolescence or even their teen years when you don't have that level of maturity, it, it's easy to kind of look at, at somebody in that season. I think this is what often happens is, you know, the 12 year old, the 11 year old boy finds himself online exposed to pornography, either wittingly or unwittingly, or out of some form of curiosity. And, and, and it's, you know, for that, for that boy, for that girl, it seems almost inescapable that they would immediately begin to internalize the experience of being exposed to this content with something is wrong with me. I am bad. Can you, can you talk about it through the yeah. lens again of how shame affects a person's identity, but specifically thinking of the, the stakes for, for children and maybe even, you know, I don't know if, if this is something that you talk about in your conferences, because I want to talk about your conferences in a minute, because I know that, that this is one of the, the key points that you address in your conferences. You invite men to them, essentially to really get free, become transformed, and overcome the issues of shame that are holding them in cycles of compulsive sexual acting out. Right. But before we get into that... Um, do you, how do you understand the issue of shame related to someone who's at a stage in life, childhood, when they don't have that maturity and that emotional and psychological and biological makeup to be able to navigate those distinctions? And then, and then how do you counsel parents? related to what their child might be struggling with? Like what can a parent do to help their child who's fallen into something like that? And, and Lila, wasn't there a story that you, I, I felt like there was a story that we read online and, and jump in Lila, if you remember this, but it was a, it was a boy who had been going into his room, um, kind of, I guess like getting under the covers or whatever looking at pornography and and when his mom found him he had written on his arms like something like you know like i am bad or you know something like that i don't know do you remember that story lila i, I don't remember that specific yeah. story but I, i'm definitely not surprised yeah it was he, he it was like writing you know on himself like i am disgusting i think is, is what it mm. was and um but i mean if you're a parent in that situation how do you navigate the intensity of that level of shame that has invaded your child's soul and sort of hijacked their identity and pigeonholed them into 
this way of thinking about themselves as as disgusting and despicable and unworthy and shameful and um, bad and you know all of those things. Can you help us on that point? Yeah. Well, sure, I can. Yeah, there's a actually that you've there's a whole thing that we'll develop in a second, but I think the primary thing that a parent needs to uh, have under their tool belt, if you will, is the uh, the ability to provide a no shame zone, so that children can talk about anything, even if that anything uh, challenges them. Uh, even if that means that the child seems to be rebelling about something, that the ability to have an open conversation is the foundation for eliminating any shame from staying there. And the reason for that is shame grows in secret. Shame does not grow in the light. And so the reality is, is that when you bring something out in the open, now you have something you can talk about and bring truth around it. When a child experiences negative things, like for me, when I was sexually abused as a child and my body responded to that sexual abuse, see, some, not only did something evil happen to me, but my, my body and uh, part of my body responded in a positive way to that. And, and yet at the same time, I felt disgust. I felt dirty. I felt soiled. I felt damaged. And so there's this confusion. How do I make sense of this? And if I internalize it, which I did is that means I buried it and I put it in deep in my heart and hid it, then if I, I'm walking around with this lie and when a seed is planted over time, when it's nurtured and watered and taking and kept, kept underneath the ground, it will grow. And when it grows, it produces. The way we break that is by providing an atmosphere where you can actually talk about it, makes makes sense of it. Because if someone would have said to me, if I would have opened up and said, this is just what happened to me, uh, my fear was that they would, they would see me as that disgusting little boy. But the truth was, if someone would have heard that, they would have picked me up, they would have hugged me, they would have said, I'm sorry, it's not your fault. Those are the words that would have helped me not internalize that, would help me expose it to the light, which means truth. And I would have gotten a different experience. It, yes, it would have been painful experience, but the most painful part of that experience is the internalization of, of those messages. So what I hear you uh, saying, Gene, in response to Benji's question about what to do is it's kind of like before it happens, building yeah. a culture of openness yeah. in your family. Is that kind of what, exactly right. what you're getting at? Yep. And that uh, there's not anything we can't talk about. There's not anything we can't discuss. That we can learn how to talk about difficult things. That I won't punish you for being honest. We can have conversation. That and, and the reality is, is that if you create that environment, then kids feel comfortable. If they feel comfortable and safe, they will come because every person desires to be known. That's a that's a driven thing inside of us. It's a need to be known and to be accepted. What keeps us from doing that is the fear of what you'll do with it if I tell you. And so the idea of having a that's no good. shame zone means I'm not going to attach it to your identity. I'm going to affirm your dignity. And yes, we may talk about that and, and address the depravity side but we're not going to kill you in the process of doing it's so. It's super helpful because I feel like uh, many people, especially 
people who have been um, raised and encultured in hyper-religious, extremely rigid, fundamentalist circles um, are so uh, ill. They're they're so um, scandalized by the behavior that they almost have no grid, no ability, no capacity, no tool to navigate what to them would seem like a an atrocious behavior. And um, and so there's really there's like one sort of box, you know, for those people of dealing with it, you know, you, you fast it out, you cast the demon out, you, you know, you plead the blood, you, and, you know, which, you know, all of those things, you know, may have their place, but the point that I'm getting at is this, this almost, um, this spiritual bypassing of the issue in a way that, doesn't actually allow you to deal with the reality of what it is, you know, what a person's child or may be going through. And, and so even for that child, again, when, when this issue just gets cornered into, it's a moral, this is a moral failure, which means you are bad. And there's, there's no way to kind of navigate that outside of, you know, this, this super narrow, the super narrow lens. And, um, and so how do you, Gene, how do you talk with parents and people? Because I, you know, obviously coming from the faith-based community, this is part of our world and undoubtedly you've encountered those folks that it's like, you know, the child use porn's like, you know, repent. Um, you know, the devil is, you know, attacking you or whatever it may be. And then, but, but there's so many other things going on there. And how do you enable parents and I guess grow parents who are in that Mm. kind of really rigid religious framework that, that would, you know, uh, would simply want to condemn that behavior without leaving room to have a no shame zone. I mean, how does, how does somebody in a, and, and maybe, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just posing the question because it's, as, as you started to talk about the no shame zone, my mind immediately went there and I thought, okay, yeah. in the really, you know, oftentimes in these hyper-religious circles, yeah. there, you know, there is no such thing as a no shame zone, right? It's, you've done bad. I mean, you should feel ashamed. You should, you know, <laughs> like you need to go fast yeah. and you need to go do penance or, you know, if you're Catholic yeah. and you need to, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, you know, to go to the priest, whatever, whatever. Anyway, uh, jump in. I'm kind of. Okay. Well, the thing is, I think uh, I want to, sh- I want to kind of shift. I'm going to actually share some, something that actually is going to shift a paradigm for, and I, and I know that many times when I do it, people just start weeping uh, simply because of it, this really kind of goes against all of that toxic stuff. And I'll just give a word picture first, and then we can mm-hmm. kind of unpack it. So when you think about it in, in the church, I've been raised in church all my life. I'm a preacher's kid. So I've got more, and I've gone to Bible college. So I've got more doctrine and teaching and Bible, and you can imagine. And one of the greatest 
contributors to shame, especially within church, is this teaching that that is actually scriptural, but we mishandle the scripture here. And so, first of all, we'll start with it. It's the thing that says, if you a good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit, right? right? We all agree. So, therefore, if you have bad fruit in your life, what? Mm. You're bad. Okay. Okay. So it goes right to the identity, and what happens right after that? It says that 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 you cast that into the fire. So in other words, not only am I bad, but I'm going to get burned alive. And one of the things that happens here is that we have missed a really key point. And that is, I want to step back and say, you know, I have good in my life and I have bad in my life. Is that, and and every one of us can say that. There are places in our life that are totally broken and messed up and need God's redemption. And there are other places in my life that are just amazing. And God's doing some amazing things through me. So I have both going on Mm -hmm. at the same time. So what means it is that either that scripture is wrong, which it's not, or it's our interpretation of that. Mm And what I want us to see is I want to shift our paradigm to see that we're not the tree, we're the field, and that we have many trees in our life. We have good and bad, in, or we're the garden, you want to use another language. And that what, and when we are a child, there are people in our life that plant toxic seeds. They tell us we're no good, or through their actions, we don't feel loved, or we don't feel like we're important, or that we're not enough. Or we go through sexual abuse, we might feel dirty or broken or soiled. Mm-hmm. But all those toxic seeds get planted, and whatever seeds get planted produce the same kind of kind of fruit. So you don't plant zucchini and get corn. Mm. You mm. get what gets planted. So if she, she, seeds of shame are planted, then it, when they produce, they will produce the kind of things that we see, pornography, drugs, alcohol, uh, anger. We could go on and on and on. That the that the, and all that fruit is telling me, all that behavior is telling me, is that I've got a bad tree in, in my garden, and I don't throw away the garden for the sake mm-hmm. of one bad tree. I go and I uproot that puppy and throw that sucker in the fire. Why? Because it's not who I am. Right. And it allows me. It allows me to take an honest look at my life without really risking my identity. Right. That's what right. That's so, what so holds me, us up. So that's a that's a really great picture and an expansion on on the idea of that story and and a perspective that is uh, super helpful and freeing. Um, let me get back. I want to just kind of drill down into this a little bit more. So uh, so going back previously to what we were talking about. So you know, the idea of a no shame zone and, and let's, you know, just include everything you've just said into kind of where I'm going to go next. But so there's this idea of a, of a no shame zone. And so just to play this out a little bit. So I'm a parent, you know, who has grown up in a very rigid, um, and for all the good, you know, that, that is in faith and, and redemption and everything, let's just be real that there's, there's a lot that, you know, that is not good. I mean, when Jesus walked the planet, his, 
his most fierce rebukes were for people in the religious community. So let's just let's just acknowledge that there's 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 some God, there's some man, there's some devil. You know, there's a little there's a little bit of everything that kind of gets you know mixed in there, and that's just a result of our fallen nature, our inability to perfectly interpret spirituality and faith in in healthy means. Um, And so let's just acknowledge that at the outset. So all that being said, there are some who have have grown up in in cultures of indoctrination, um, very rigid, and and in their sincerity, where they would be be conflicted. And I'm using an extreme example of this. I'm saying the person that's, you know, almost practically grown up in a cult, let's just say. You know, but there will be parallels to people who have grown up in healthy religious circles as well. Sure. It's basically all faith-based, you know, cultures, community, households will deal with this at some level. Right. And here, so, but here's the, the key point is in a person's sincerity, they think I've got to hold the line on morality. I have to hold the line on ethics and therefore I need to to punish bad behavior. I need to call out bad behavior. I need to um, rebuke bad behavior. I need to discipline bad behavior, right? So that's, that's the model. And, and there's, there's a portion of that that is, that is good, right? You know, so, you know, spare the rods, spoil the child. It, it's, you know, book of Proverbs wisdom, this idea that we are to, we are to discipline our, our children. So, so even being guided by something as good and sincere as, as wanting to bring healthy discipline mm-hmm. into our children's lives, I think it, it can inhibit us from doing what you're talking about, which is creating this safe zone. So my question is, how do we reconcile or navigate this longing to be a good disciplinarian in a healthy sense mm-hmm. to hold the line on, mor- on moral and ethical behavior in of our in our families, and at the same time create a shame free zone. Because for you, you you were a pastor's kid. You were in you were in a home where you know you had a, a moral authority figure in your house, and yet that shame zone shame free zone did not exist. And I think that's the case for many, many, many people. They live in, you know, quote unquote, good households. I mean, I can't even tell you the amount of people that we interviewed in the sex industry and in the porn industry in particular who had come from Christian households and they didn't have a shame free zone. And so we're missing something, you know, in our sincerity, in our desire to do good, in our desire to be disciplinarians, Mm -hmm. we are missing something. Yeah. That is having an unintended consequence of our children falling into cycles of shame that result later in all kinds of de- destructive behavior, ways of being in the world, identity, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so Gene, could you kind of just speak into that point of if I'm a good parent and I wanted to, to raise my children well, how can I do that? How can I hold the standard? while at yeah. the same time creating a shame-free zone. It's almost like walking the line between acceptance and no shame. Like whether you're accepting the behavior, 
parents don't feel like they want to do that. But at the same time, how do you not accept it or condone it, but then at the same time have a shame-free zone? So it's really kind of, it's really important then to make it clearer about that you're separating identity from behavior. Yeah, that is such a a, a key element here. We have, because that is what shame functions and thrives when we attach identity to behavior. So, you know, the fact that someone comes home with a, a bad report card does not mean they're stupid. It just means they have some more growing to do. So what I do and the way I approach this with, and believe me, this makes all the difference in the world, is the thing is, what is the real truth? The real truth is when you speak the truth in love, what is the real truth? The real truth is that they are a son and daughter of God first. They are, their identity is intact, that they are uh, so, someone of value. God created them. God made them. That is who they are. Mm-hmm. Their identity is not their struggle. And so I want to, in a no shame zone, is be able to affirm the identity of who they are, to affirm their value and their dignity. That's good. And to affirm who that what I see in them that is valuable. And at the same time, as I do that, I can address the depravity. I can talk about the dysfunction. I can actually talk about what's harmful. Why? Because I'm not attaching it to who they are. And I'm not treating them with disrespect or like they're trash or that I'm actually letting them know it's because you're so valuable and so important and so you mean so much and that I love you so much that we're having this conversation because this goes against everything that I see that you That's are. Good. And it makes all the difference in the world because I'm calling out who they were meant to be. I'm calling out what they were created to be. And what happens is we lose we don't we don't, we look at the wrong things we lose sight of who they are through the through the lens of behavior and quite frankly i think it's because we all carry shame we all care we carry and we look through that lens of shame rather than having a clear perception of what it is to to see mm-hmm. dignity first mm-hmm. to affirm dignity and, first and you know, yeah this is this is such a helpful point and where my mind goes when you say those things is to just to kind of pull it out to a more macro level perspective for a second here is just as humans, I think we sometimes lack the capacity for nuance or we struggle with, with um, embracing nuance. And so, and I think that becomes especially true inside of, you know, faith-based communities. And so it's, you know, you, you behaved in a manipulative way. You are operating in witchcraft. Therefore you are a witch. I mean, we have these like really extreme ways of identifying people. You, somebody (laughs) offered you something to have sex with them. You are now a prostitute and a whore. I mean, it's like, it's these extreme kind of polarizations and, we are prone to that as humans. We're especially prone to that in the church. It's, you know, you're either a Republican or a Democrat. There's no, the idea that we would just, <laughs> I like these ideas over here and I like these ideas over here. And I, you know, it, no, it's like, what box are you in? You are either a, this denomination or this denomination. You are either 
of the faith or you are an unbeliever. You are either, you know, and it, it's, it's such extreme polarizations just across the board that, um, you know, again, we struggle with this as humans. I think we especially struggle with this as people of faith. And, and so, so we struggle with embracing this idea of nuance and it, it feels like the more mature way related to this conversation is to embrace the nuance and the complexity that exists within our humanity and that it is perfectly uh, possible and even I would say probable and likely that your child or you as a person, you know, I, I was also thinking about this on a personal level, not just on a parental level, but like it's, it's perfectly possible, you know, mm-hmm. that, that me as a human being could be a, a good human being with a calling upon my life um, through and through having good intentions. Let's just say, you know, a righteous identity as a son of God, fill in the blank, whatever, and also act in a way that is beneath that. That is perfectly possible. And so I think that part of the struggle here that I see in what you're talking about is the struggle to embrace nuance and to understand that we need to guard against the temptation to polarize and to categorize and to turn everything into you went out and, you know, you went out and got drunk. You are a drunkard. You know, like, stop, stop with that. You know, you went on and looked at pornography. You are a porn (laughs) addict and a sex, you know, pervert. You know, it's like. That's where we go, and and then that inflames right. all kinds of self righteousness and hellfire and brimstone preaching and just lots of things that only perpetuate the wound and the problem and the dysfunction. Instead of hey, you you acted out in a way that doesn't align with who you are. That acting out doesn't actually identify you, but let's deal. I mean. That way that you're describing this is just so immensely eye-opening and helpful and illuminating. I don't know, Lila. What I'd love to hear your thoughts on if you had if you have any thoughts because I'm just my my wheels are turning. I'm a, I'm verbally processing <laughs> this right now because I'm yeah, it's just hitting me for the first time. No, I think I think it's so good, and I think uh, it, like what you're saying, it's something that we it's not natural to us most of the time, and. So we have to kind of go against our grain and be intentional about it. But I think it's so important, especially for parents and then also people who are struggling with things like addiction to be able to do this, um, that it's so worth the, the effort, the intentionality, the mindfulness that it would take to implement having this way of thinking, this nuanced way of thinking where you can look at a person doing things that are destructive or even looking at yourself doing things that are destructive and say they're doing something wrong that's hurtful that's harmful but they're not wrong they're not bad people they're yeah. you know, like Gene is saying it's 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 not their identity it's it's um, and i think that's such an enlightening groundbreaking earth-shattering like way of um, thinking about this issue that is so immensely helpful it can't be overstated um but one thing that I also think about when you're talking is the idea of compassion. And um, that's uh, it's something that Benji and I have yeah. dived into a little bit as we're, we're actually finishing up a co-write on a book 
are two books about pornography. Uh, the first one is called The Triple X Factor, uh, How Porn is Changing Our World and What We Can Do About It. And a big emphasis of the book is not just focusing on the problem, but also on solutions. And one of the chapters is overcoming porn addiction. And we have a section about this idea of shame. And, um, you know, one of the things that we were trying to uncover in that chapter was what kind of tools do we have to unseat that power of shame? And one of them was the idea of compassion and being able to have compassion on oneself. Um, and then actually having compassion on others, I think, uh, as if you're, if you're thinking about your child or your spouse or, um, somebody else. So, um, yeah, th- I guess that's kind of where my mind is going next is, um, you know, the, the tools of being able to help us in our mind go against our natural tendency to not be able to do this. What tools can we employ? And I think one of those is really cultivating in our hearts, this, uh, feeling of compassion for ourselves and for others. You know, the, the thing is that we're, we're all really good about, uh, the idea of someone repenting and, and embracing them. But one of the things we miss in all this is you go back to the story of the prodigal son, and there are many other examples as well. But that one's a really clear one. That, that man was his son. The, the boy was his son. And he went off and he did his own thing and he, he made his mistakes. But the father that embraced him wasn't embracing all of the mistakes he made. The father was embracing his son. And that is the piece that we miss here. When we're looking at people, we can't seem to see the dignity behind the behavior. And um, come on, what that is such an important thing. I mean, even in this work that we're all in right now, I mean, the, and, and I'm not in any way, shape or form condoning anything that men do and buying women and buying each other. That, that is it is not OK. It's disgusting and it's wrong. And yet at the same time behind that. Those men are, 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 are created for a purpose, and it's not for that. And if we can learn to call that out, we can actually bring the men into this thing in a different way. Uh, I, just, I, I, just, I know that's a hard statement to make because they do such oh, – man, it breaks my heart. I, every time I read about an, another man using women or, or hurting children, it just breaks my heart. And yet I know they're made for more. Yes. They're made for more. And yes. that the best thing I can do is call that dignity out yes. and call them out to, to, to align themselves with what they were made for. And, uh, boy, I just I can't say that strong enough. That's what brought me out. That's what I've seen so many changes from people who are hearing that because I have literally spoke to people that have had I've had to speak to some pretty crazy stuff and yet still keep their dignity intact. And you cannot believe the beauty of what comes in, comes from that. Wow. Um, it just, right. it's just a whole different way. There, Learning to separate identity from the behavior is absolutely key to speaking to any depravity. Another propensity that we have is our propensity towards revenge and our propensity towards, uh, you know, um, categorizing people as enemies. And so Jesus's command to love your enemy is maybe the most radical command ever given by anybody on the face of the earth ever. Just the idea of that is like so antithetical towards anything that would be, could be considered normal for us as, as human beings. And, um, 
And so, but, you know, but if you, if, again, if you look out at the culture, what's uh, happening uh, on uh, one hand, there is this emphasis on elevating the severity of something like sexual violation to a degree that is appropriate um, and commensurate with the crime. And, and that is, as you said, that's, that is significant. That is so important that we raise that bar and that standard so that sexual harassment, sexual violation, sexual assault of any degree is not tolerated and is, and is understood to be an extreme violation of another person. So that being said, exactly. then, on the other side of this equation, the, virtually the only thing that I have seen done related to those offenders and perpetrators is to shame and condemn them. And now, again, that's, that's understandable, and there's probably a degree right. of that that is appropriate, you know, to condemn that behavior. But when that's the only, when that's the only um, offering on, you know, par here is there's the only way to respond to the perpetrator is to shame and condemn. I think we're missing part of the bigger picture, and and so I think that in order for us to evolve. In a, in a healthy and a mature way, past these types of, of behavior that are holding us as back as as men, in um, is that we we also have to see. I think what you're talking about here is um, that you know in that person somewhere that you perceive as a monster through and through is an actual human being created in the image God of God with a purpose for their life, who was, you know, just, they weren't born into this world, a predator and a monster. Like there is a human being in there and that human being has value and that human being has worth. And so how do we, how do we address the offense in a way that is commensurate with the crime? How do we, um, and in doing so, how do we, you know, uh, I guess, vindicate the person who has been, been victimized in a way that can be healing for them, where they they know that they have been heard, believed, um, identified with, shown great care and compassion, and offered that understanding, all those things. How can we? On the perpetrator side of this, how can we address the crime that has been done, but also call that person higher into their, I guess, their true identity um, or their, their or their ideal identity? Sure. Do you, do you get what? Do you yeah. hear what I'm getting at here? And I just want to say. Benji, you're making me want to go and re-edit my article that I did on Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> I think we were feeling the rage, right? We are feeling the rage. It was, yeah, because that was not yeah. what I was thinking when I was writing that. I was thinking, oh, you know, yeah. I'm so mad and how could he do this? And um, I was definitely not seeing the humanity there or the potential for uh, him being you know that that that's not who he is that that's what he's done like that was not in my heart i'll be honest with you when i was writing that or when i you know 
when we see Bill Cosby right, right. or we see like all these right. other people in media, it's different when it's your child. Right. So that's a little right. bit easier <laughs> when it's these people out there. That's not the natural reaction. Right. So, uh, yeah. yeah, everything you're saying is just, you know, it's hitting home for me too. I'm like, I need to have a different perspective too. when I'm addressing these issues and these perpetrators. Yeah. I, I, Man, I think it's that good. the thing that, that Gene said earlier, if there's one thing that I remember from this podcast or that anybody remembers from this podcast, it's shame exposes your depravity, but it doesn't um, attack your identity. That's the thing that I want us all to remember. And that's really what I'm building this everything. I think this whole conversation is being built around that concept. And I, I want to just mention one other thing about this and then Gene, have you jump in and, and kind of reflect and just wrap with us on this for a minute. Um, but there was something that you had said about the story of the prodigal son. He had done all these things, but when he came back and again, this is something that I don't think I've ever thought of before until you said it, but, and I don't know why I keep bringing back to faith communities. I guess that's, that's been so much of my context that it's what seems normal to me to relate it to. But within faith communities, there's this, the idea of repentance is that you go before God and you confess, I am a worthless sinner. I am a worm. I am worth, I am worthy of destruction in the flames of hellfire and nothing else. I deserve no mercy. You know, it's like, that's this, the idea of repentance is that you're owning, you know, this idea that you're just this awful person, right? And then you repent. And then through that repentance, God washes you in the blood of Jesus. And then you become valuable, forgiven, reconciled, accepted, all this and that. So that's been my kind of traditional understanding of the idea of repentance. But what I hear you saying is that there's a different way to think about repentance, which isn't I'm the lowly worm, worthless, deserving of punishment, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore God forgive me, but rather coming to God and saying, I am a son created in your image who is full of beauty and purpose and meaning and dignity. And I have acted in ways that are beneath who you created me to exactly. be. Forgive me and reconcile me to yourself. I mean, that is so just mind blowing, just that shift in perspective and even how you approach repentance. I, I think a lot of people would probably think of that as heresy. Yeah. Uh, but I think you're right. I mean, again, using the story of the prodigal son, I think that's right. Is like, yeah, we have intrinsic value by virtue of being created beings, you know, if, if you believe that. And we, and we know our audience is broader than, than just a faith-based community, but, but in our, in our way of understanding cosmology, the world, our existence, you know, we, we do believe in that we have been created. And I think with that comes this intrinsic, intrinsic value. And to be able to carry that into the place of repentance, I mean, it changes everything. It's, yeah, it's, it's mind blowing. It, it, it makes all the difference in the world. Um, I, 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 I mean, I'm not just 
saying because we've studied this. I mean, I literally walk this out in the conferences that we do, the how we see people heal and change. I see people literally own the most horrendous stuff. And they've done that because they've actually got a glimpse of who they really are. And that, that, that what they've done is violated the very thing of who they are. And the more they get a sense of who they are, the more energy they have to fight the very thing that's destroying them and destroying others. It actually comes from a whole different place. It doesn't say that I, we're not saying that you don't own your sin and say, Lord, I, this is wrong. I, I've hurt people. This is a wretched thing I've done. But it is not my identity. My identity is not just my struggle. And it's because this is so important. I don't, I don't know if I can say this right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work at it here because I've been just getting a gripped glimpse of this. Is that it is the beauty inside of me that actually hates what's going on inside of me. And it's because I don't like what's going on inside of me. It says there's something better, greater to me than my struggle. Because there's something, because to say that I'm fighting an addiction and, and maybe I'm losing every day in that addiction, maybe I'm falling on my face and maybe I'm making the biggest mistakes of my life, but I, inside I'm going, I don't like this. I know there's something more to life. I know there's something worth living for. I just can't figure it out. And it's that I just can't, I know there's something more is the beauty inside saying, see, you're sabotaging something here. There's something more to you than this. And it's the, it's the beauty that gives us the energy to fight the bad. And it's, and it's you know, that's, that's the God created. That's God's hand on our life that made us something more. We were designed for something more. And we've lost sight of that through the garbage that's happened and the messes that we've made and the, the wrong choices we've made and the things that have happened in my world. We've lost sight of that. And no, so okay. I think... In, Helping people actually get a glimpse of it. And the way it showed up in my life, you know, you've heard me tell the story several times, and I haven't done it on this podcast with you before, is, is that when I was at my worst, literally at my worst, where everybody had thrown me out of church and no one would talk to me, no one who everybody that was supposed to be my friend was out of my life. And one man chose to embrace my life. And when he did, when I told him everything and he moved into my life, when he gave me that hug and he wept over me, I he gave me more than just a hug. He gave me more than tears. What he said to me in his words was, there's more to you than this, and I see it. It's the ability to see the beauty really beyond the debris. It's the ability to call out the beauty beyond the debris. It's to be able to say, I see it, and I want you to know I'm here to help you grow in that. So good. As you're, as you're, as you're, yeah, it's really, really helpful. And as you're sharing these things, I, part of the reason why I, this is hitting me so profoundly, and part of the reason why I think this is so significant is that I think that it's, it's much easier for us to identify with the aspects of the, the negative parts of who we are than the positive. I think it's really, yeah. it's much, it's much more difficult to come into agreement with the idea that I am beautiful. I am created for purpose. I have a, you know, yada, yada, you know, fill in the blank. Like I remember, um, 
talking with uh, John Eldridge one time, and he said, in all his years of counseling and all the people that he, all the women that he's counseled, counseled with, he said, um, I've never met a single woman who believed in her heart of hearts that she was beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that just really struck me, this, this idea that it's, it's, it's much more easy for us to identify with an identity that is associated with some kind of shame and, and you know, just looking at ourselves in a, a more lowly way than it is to identify with, I am good and whole. And, you know, it's like we, we're so easily de- defined by our brokenness. There's this, um, there's this quote uh, that I want to read from Henry Nouwen, who is, he's, I don't know if you've read his stuff at all, Gene, but he's a, I, okay. Yeah, I love, I, I love his yes. stuff. And the reason why I love his stuff is not just for doctrinal theological reasons, but there's a, there's a spirit about him. There's a right spirit. How do you form and shape your spirituality? If there's, there's more to it than just checking all the right boxes on what is true and what is the right doctrinal position. And Henry Nouwen is somebody that I would describe as being of a right spirit. And there is something, his books are just so powerful. And, uh, and this quote on this subject, he says, over the years, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. When people have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive, attractive solutions. So what he's saying is, is like that we hear those voices, you know, and, and regardless of what context you, you came up in, just in the world as humans, we hear those voices of you are worthless, you are unlovable and fill in the blank. Um, and so in dealing with those, rather than work through those feelings of worthlessness and, and feeling unlovable and so on, rather than do that, we compensate for that shame and those feelings by in unhealthy ways by becoming, you know, hyper vigilant and control and, and we polarize to the side of being controlling. And I'm going to take control over my life to compensate for being worthless and unlovable by getting enough success, enough popularity, enough power, enough external affirmation to compensate for what, you know, these other, these feelings of being worthless and unlovable. And he's saying that that is a trap. And so I think the message that you're carrying is so critical to disrupt that trap and provide a healthy way to yes. navigate through this issue of shame. He Just to finish his quote, he says, the real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me mm-hmm. or criticizes me, as soon as I am rejected, left alone or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I am a nobody. My dark side says, I am no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest Mm. enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts 
the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Can I get an amen? Hmm. <laughs> amen. Just, amen. Just <laughs> I'm just sitting there like yeah. soaking it all in. It's, it's applicable, I think, to so many people for so many different kinds of issues and so many different scenarios, this whole concept that we're having, uh, we're having church here. I'm on just a, really glad that we're talking a, about it. Podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rev, Reverend Gene McConnell has you come know, to church. The thing is... <laughs> it's you... like, what, I mean, what could be, what could be more important than d- figuring out what your true identity is, who you are, yeah. and then living from exactly. that place in everything that you do. I mean, it would affect everything. It would affect, you know, what kind of parent you are, what kind of person is just like, uh, yeah, everything. So, uh, so, well, in the whole thing of, go ahead. Well, (laughs) Well, let me just say this. The whole thing of being authentic is that authentic. I used to think, and I've, I've evolved in, in, over this, in the last several years, but it's really hit me in the last six months is that, with the word authentic being living an authentic self, I used to think was just being real about your struggles, letting people in, no hiding. And I'm totally still there, except for it's evolved and morphed into more. What I really see in authentic means is, is that I'm living who I was meant to be. So discovering my true identity and living from it. That is the way God wants. The greatest problem I carry is, is that I literally am my greatest abuser because I am hiding what I was meant to be. I am destroying what I meant to be Mm. by living in secret. See, you know, I live in Alaska and obviously Alaska is gorgeous and there's nothing more beautiful than seeing those mountains just shine and stand forth. They speak of there's a God, there's a creator. And so when I look at those mountains, they speak out. There's a creator. When I look at the sun and I see the sun is created and that it's perfect and it's it it it's not too close and it's not too far away. It's perfect. It's it and it's living in its purpose. Well, I am in that I am one of those creations. And I am created by that same God and I have purpose. And the thing that hurts the most is I'm not living in it. And so what shame does, what the hard, the biggest damage shame does is shame causes me to hide the light that I was created to be. I was meant to reflect God's glory in a unique way. And shame causes me to hide that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you're mentioning just authenticity, that is the name of your organization, right? Yes. Authentic yes. Relationships. International. International. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's so good. The, and what's your website, Gene? It's uh, authenticrelationshipsint.com. So, so what we're talking about today on this podcast is shame. And we're talking about shame specifically in the relationship to sexual pornography addiction, sexual acting out. And we need to get a grasp and a handle on this issue of shame, we need to understand it and we need to know when shame is healthy and helpful versus when it's toxic and harmful. And we need to know how to navigate this in our own lives and in the lives for those of us that have children or are working with kids 
Um, we, we need to get this if we're really, I mean, just as humans, because you may not be struggling with shame, but it may be a friend. It may be a child. It may be a family member. Um, it's, it's so a part of our world. And, and so we need to get a handle on this. And, you know, I, we talked earlier about how do we, how do we deal with this issue of shame and creating a shame-free zone in our homes as parents, um, for those of us that are parents. But, you know, the thing that I want to say about that is, is it's not just the children that are going to get hit by shame. It, oftentimes it's parents as well. So, you know, the child does something, they act out in a certain way. The parent maybe comes on too strong because they're experiencing high stress level. And then, and now the parent feels shameful. I'm a horrible parent. And, and it's just, I mean, just shame so pollutes our relationships. It can pollute our lives. And we need to get a handle on this. And we need to claim our core identity as the beloved, as the core truth of our existence, as Henry Nouwen says, and as Jean talks about, we need to claim Mm -hmm. that first and we need to revisit that every day. We need to revisit who we are as the beloved. We need to hear the voice of our father speaking over us saying, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And it's only then I feel like that we can actually begin to broach the subject of all the feelings of worthlessness, re, you know, self-rejection, um, all the false identities that we take on by a result of, of acting out in, in ways that, that you know, are negative and that, that don't define who we are at our core. And, um, and so, yeah, so Gene, I think, you know, for my part, and I know, I think, I think I speak on behalf of Lila too. We're really grateful. We're grateful for you taking on this battle for you trumpeting this message and you are hosting these conferences and calling people to come and understand this issue. And I've heard lots of feedback about how life-changing they are. And we had you speak at the abolition summit and it was the most popular session of the whole abolition summit that year. And so I think that for those of us, our listeners out there that are hearing this, if you want to go deeper into this, um, then I recommend getting connected with one of Gene's conferences, having him come out to your church as a speaker. Gene, how can, where do your conferences take place? How can people get a hold of you? Um, this message can change the world and we need to get it out there. Well, we put on conferences in anywhere that people would like us to come. Uh, right now, I just got through coming. I just got through doing one. In- can you come to Kansas yeah, City? Yeah, sure. <laughs> 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 the only thing- I'll, I'll be the first in line. <laughs> well, the, the host, we, the biggest thing is finding a host, somebody that will host it. And then we bring in, we bring in the conference wherever that is. And we just got through doing one in Kentucky and it was just unbelievably powerful and we got two in, in uh, Alaska coming up. I got one coming up in three weeks, October 11, 11 through 13. And I got one in November 29 through November or through December 1 in uh, Homer, Alaska. So we got two coming up before the end of the year. Um, the thing about the conferences is that we're using teaching, we're using drama, we're using art, we're using music, we're using video, we're using small groups as a way to help people actually dig in and work on shame. 
hmm. um, powerful. It's and so and so. Do yeah, people go do, to your website then to be able to yes. connect to invite you, or uh, is that the way? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's. Yeah, do a website or they can call me at 907-952-0438. That is 907-952-0438. And the website gives you lots of information. There's there's some stuff there about the conferences themselves. They're called Pursuing the Hidden Heart. I would just second what Benji said in that this message is so important. We're so grateful for you. And it does, it resonates with so many people. Even your podcast, Benji was saying your Abolition Summit session was one of the most popular. Uh, And also the previous podcast that you did was one of our most listened to podcasts because people are just drawn to this message because they're so hungry and thirsty for what you have to say. And because it's so healing on so many levels so I, yes. yes, I would just say we are grateful for you and to everybody who's listening, take advantage of Gene in the best way possible, uh, get him out to, yeah. to share his life changing message with you. And I think it will, it like one of the best things that you could do. It need, it needs to get, this message needs to get into the DNA of every community out there. Every church community needs this in their DNA. Every school community needs this in their DNA. Every work culture needs this in their DNA. We're just performance-oriented, driven human beings. And we so easily polarize. And we so easily gravitate towards judgment, condemnation, um, shame, self-rejection, judgment of others. Uh, And... And we need this message to come in and change our lives, change our communities and change the world so that we can overcome and we can become the fullest, highest expression yeah. of who we were created to be. So, Gene, I was again just going to say one more thing, and Glad that is the power of Gene's message mm-hmm. uh, is it comes from a place of such authenticity because he has, in order to have this message, to carry this message in such a powerful way, he has gone through um, just some of the darkest, most difficult things that you could ever imagine. And so I would highly recommend for everybody to go back and to listen to our previous podcast where Gene shares his story because it's so profound and it's so um, inspiring and, uh, impacting. And so, yeah, just a little bit of context there in that, you know, Gene doesn't just, you didn't just think this up one day and say, Oh, this is a good, good message I need to share. No, this is something that he lived and, um, it's coming out of a really true, authentic place from, from his own yeah. experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. thank you both for the allowing me to have the opportunity to, to speak and share, um, I, I would I the I think the hardest part is that most people just think that they're no good that they they don't measure up and they don't mount to anything and I can say with full confidence that's a lie and to to discover who you are is the journey and I just think that's a worthwhile journey because there's so much that you were created for and it's much more than the shame that you're experiencing now. Mm. So to all of our listeners out there. Just soak that up. I think this is the word for you today to know if you're listening to this podcast that the core truth of your existence 
is that you are the beloved. So let's all press mm-hmm. into that. And uh, we look forward to talking with you again here soon. Thanks, Gene, so much for coming on. We wish you the best with everything that you're doing. Thank you. And uh, I'm sure our paths will cross again here soon. God bless. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to our podcast. To learn more about how you can be involved, go to exoduscry.com and follow us on social media. If you have questions or comments, email us at feedback at exoduscry.com. We'd love to hear from you.